Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Welcome to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jim McNamara. Our guest today is Dave Sears. Dave is a retired Navy SEAL commander who served 20 years of active military duty as a United States Navy SEAL officer. He served on multiple East Coast SEAL teams, Naval Special Warfare Development Group, various joint commands, and headquarters United States Special Operations Command. Commander Sears has participated in a number of conflicts and contingency operations in Latin America, Europe, Africa, and Asia. He is a graduate of Boston University and the Naval Postgraduate School, earning a Master of Science in Defense Analysis. He is the co-founder and managing partner of Zundis Global, LLC, using crisp thinking principles to navigate the complexity of a rapidly emerging world. Zundis helps organizations and individuals increase performance, leadership, and innovation. A keynote speaker, senior consultant and advisor to multiple clients in the defense and technology space. Dave is a regular guest commentator on Fox News, Fox Business, and CBSN. Commander, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jim. Really appreciate it. Commander, I really enjoyed your book. It was a terrific balance between real-world operational and some of the lessons learned there and applications to both civilian and business life. Perhaps we could start right from the beginning. Uh, could you talk a little about your early life? Sure. I grew up and started out in Pennsylvania, and then my dad was a corporate guy for Motorola, and he went up from, you know, he had uh, enlisted out of high school. Instead of getting drafted to Vietnam, he enlisted and went after he was done with his commitment there, came back and did the GI Bill and became a corporate guy. Uh, he started in sales and then just worked his way up all the way to general elected officer. So we moved around a little bit, not too much, a little bit in Pennsylvania, and then kind of formative years, junior high and high schools in Colorado. So I spent a lot of time there in the woods and the mountains and things like that. And then off I went to Boston University where I had a Navy ROTC reserve officer training course scholarship. So they're going to pay for school and I'm going to give them four years of service on the back end. Junior year, you decide what you want to, you, you apply for some specialty field within the Navy. And mine was, I had applied to be a SEAL, special operations and or special warfare, it's actually called. And I got it. I was accepted, you know, go through a lot of psych testing and physical evaluations and recommendations and all that. And I got accepted. And five days after I graduated, I was commissioned as an ensign in the U S Navy. And five days later I was in Coronado, California, beginning SEAL training. And then the next 20 some years <laughs> are all involved in the SEAL. That's fantastic. The story you tell about Dave from Harvard, a uh, former SEAL who went on to study uh, medicine, we assume that that's a, 
that played a pivotal role in your SEAL journey? It did. You know, it, obviously everything as you look back, there's some serendipity to things and some luck and then taking advantage of those opportunities, really creating your own luck. And Dave was the stepbrother of one of my roommates and good friends from ROTC. And I had sort of been down a path of, hey, I'm going to do my four years when I get out, you know, when I graduate, and then I'll go join the private sector and go into business or corporate or who knows what. And I didn't have 2020 vision. So I had made this assumption that I couldn't go SEAL teams because, of course, these guys are the best of the best, but they only want people that are perfect, right? Yep. So I was going to go Navy diver. I was always very physically involved and, you know, like things like either Navy diver or explosive ordnance disposal, somewhere I could dive and still have, you know, a smaller unit that I could be with. And when I met Dave, uh, he just kind of looked at me and said, what, why aren't you going SEAL teams? And I was like, well, I don't have 2020. And he said, you know, he enlightened me. You don't need 2020 vision. <laughs> stupid. And, you know, this goes back to importance of making assumptions and how assumptions can sort of become facts in people's heads. And you got to question those assumptions. And at that time I didn't, and Dave helped me do that. And that set me on a whole new track, really one that I think I should have been on. And he was, he was instrumental in helping me, you know, train and understand some things about what I was going to go through, but, you know, not overly heavy on that. He's more on mental attitude of, Hey, here's my advice. And it's the same advice I give to people who want to go in the SEAL teams or who go to, you know, our trainings called uh, the initial trainings, basic underwater demolition SEAL training. Yeah. And the advice is don't quit. That's it. You know, <laughs> it's really simple, but very easy, you know, very difficult to execute. Could you tell us uh, what the BUDS experience is like? So BUDS is definitely a unique experience. What you have is BUDS is, I'm going to overly simplify a little bit. There's some other extras in here, but essentially it is three phases, uh, each about two months long or so. The first phase is called strength and conditioning, which is a you know, awesome politically correct way to say, we're going to hammer the crap out of you, <laughs> beat you up and just, you know, physically and mentally abuse you. Then the next phase is combat diving where they teach you how to become a Navy diver or, or a basic scuba diver in order to go on to become a combat swimmer and do what seals, the, the type diving that seals do. And then the last phase is land warfare where we're going to start to teach you, uh, shooting with rifle and pistol, land navigation, patrolling, um, some leadership pieces on how to lead small squads, small squad tactics. Uh, we're going to give you explosives training and electric and non-electric explosives and give you a, a introduction to some of the things that you're going to encounter and sort of a, a baseline. And the way it works is um, my class you know, I'll get these numbers wrong. I don't exactly remember them, but you have like a little pre-phase, but I think it was when you classed up, I don't know where we were at, 130 some people, something like that, that start. Um, you lose the majority of people near the beginning and in first phase and in hell week. 
And I think when we ended, to give you context, there was about less than 20 of us that made it straight through. And we graduated a total maybe 32, 33, something like that. And uh, essentially it's focused on, they, they really want you to succeed. Now they're going to push you to your limits to make sure that you're what they want, but they would love to have a class, you know, instructors, and we'd love to have a class graduate everybody, right. but not everybody's capable of it. So they really are going to push you physically, but connected to the physical is really the mental piece because it's up to you. You voluntarily select yourself out. You walk up and you go up and you, if you've had enough, there's a famous bell there. You go up and you ring that bell three times and you say, I quit or I drop or whatever people who quit say. And they lay your helmet there like you're dead to the class and your helmet gets lined up with all the quitters and it sits out there every day for everybody to see. And that's it. You're out of the program. So there's a lot of people that do that, but it's, that is mental. You are, there's very few, some people are dropped on performance. Um, it's, it's not that common. It does. It certainly happens to a certain percentage, probably 10, 10%, 15% or something, but the majority is mentally people quit. So they want to know that you're going to be resilient. They want to know that you are going to persevere through whatever they throw at you. You know, it's a, it's a rigged game too. You're, you're not going to win. So no matter what you do, something you've done is wrong and they have punishments for that or they have ways to make you miserable. Uh, one of the things they use to great success is cold. You know, the water there is in San Diego. Pacific Ocean is, even in the summertime, it's not exactly warm <laughs> so for anybody who's been there. <laughs> and you spend a lot of time in that water just breathing. And it can be, you know, they have something called surf torture, or I don't know, maybe they got politically correct and changed it. And it's probably called like surf rehabilitation now or something. <laughs> but they, uh, you all link arms as a class, face the ocean, and you walk out in the ocean, like maybe up to your knees, and they have you do an about face, you turn around and they'll say, take seats. And you all sit down and link arms. And you just sit there, you know, your butt and legs in the water and you're, you know, kind of up to your waist or chest there sitting down and the waves just crash over you and you just sit there as a class and freeze. You're not doing anything else. <laughs> yeah. And they're just yelling at you, telling you how bad you all suck. And, you know, we're not leaving until anybody, till somebody quits and they might have you lay down, you know, and then the water just rushes over your head and then they might have you get out. And it's, I mean, it's actually pretty scientific, you know, they're, they're watching temperatures and people's reactions and things, but the idea is to make you really get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah, that, that's a line that we heard from uh, Stu Smith. Uh, we've been very yep. fortunate enough here in New York to have a number of guys from your community contribute to, to our endeavors. Uh, the story you tell of, of going from, uh, the ocean to a, to the steel pier. I mean, how does, how does one get through that? You know, you just, it's, I think people divide up in their minds. It takes, 
you know, one of the things I talk in that book is, you know, nothing lasts forever. And so to, to talk about the steel pier a little bit, it's a pier that's over on the actual amphibious base side. And it's during hell week. And what they'll do is they take you to this cold steel pier and they have you stripped down to your skivvies and you half of the class jumps into the water and the other class lays on the steel, the cold steel pier. Right. And might do sit-ups or might do push-ups or might be jumping jacks, something like that. Or maybe they'll just lay there. Um, it just depends. And just huddle together and kind of freeze. The other half of the class is in the water and you use your pants, the old sort of um, float as a flotation device. So you kind of mm-hmm. tie your pants together. You know, most guys have had some water training do this. You kind of tie the, the legs together and then you flop the pants over your head to capture some air in there. And then you just sit in there and float and freeze. <laughs> <laughs> and then you switch, you know, and then they'll be like, okay, you guys get out. The other guys go in and you just, that just goes on for it feels like forever you don't know i don't i don't know whether they're for hour hours but what you do is you know different guys are going to have different milestones depending on the how uncomfortable it is or the level of intensity so some guys might have the milestone of the next meal you know mantra to get in their heads or the next day they might have, hey, just get through this evolution. All I got to do is get out of the water this next time. And then you're on the pier and you set the next goal and you're like, okay, I just get through the next set of push-ups. I'll just do the next, you know, it's, you kind of see that sometimes guys will play mental games when they run. Um, I'm just going to make it to the next telephone pole. Okay, just the next telephone pole. And that may decrease, you know, as the intensity goes up. But you're always looking forward i think that get to the next thing get to the next thing and so if you have that idea and you don't just wallow in the moment and get caught up in that moment look to the future there things are going to change i'm going to there is something ahead of this this condition that i'm in is not going to exist forever and it will get better whether that's getting better on the pier or i'll be back in the water or i'll be at a meal soon you know Something like that. So you you have this forward-looking mindset, not kind of stuck and wallowing in in your present or the past. Great lessons that a lot of our young our young firefighters could could, could listen and learn from. And then after graduating and being operational, you then decide to join uh, to try out for DevGrew. How does right. that experience differ from from Buds? So now that's going to be a much more performance-based training and selection. They are selecting you. You're not self-selecting out. Uh, Nobody really quits that. It takes a lot just to get selected to even go try out. And then you're going to go through another about six-month training period. And it's going to be guys that are all SEALs, have been rock stars at their previous commands. Or wherever they were generally you know the youngest guy it changes but you know the youngest is usually going to have at least four years under his belt maybe five that'd be really pretty young to come there and other guys are going to have eight nine ten years maybe even more and then you all come there as new guys 
And of that group that comes there, you know, you're going to lose 50% to performance if they won't select. That doesn't make them bad guys. It just means right. maybe they weren't equipped to do that job or they weren't learning fast enough or they couldn't handle the pace that was going on there. And so they get selected out for performance. So it's going to be, it's extremely hard physically, but it's not designed to try and make you quit. It's designed to teach you skills, new sets of skills and skills the way they want you to learn them and see that you're able to learn very fast, process these things. Are you going to fit in with the culture there as well as an important assessment that's going on? And are you able to operate under these stresses and learn these things, come back from some defeats maybe, and continue on? So they're assessing for all that, and they're assessing, really heavily assessing performance, you know, and how you work as a team. So it's a, it's a completely different experience, and it's, it's a great one, you know, and it's, um, it is fast and furious without a doubt. And how long generally is the career span of someone who gets to, to dev group? It differs on, so for an enlisted man, it's going to be, they could stay there for the rest of their careers, you know, all, almost they, they can stay there for a really long time. I had guys that had been there, you know, 15 years, 17 years. So once they get there, they, they won't change again unless they have to. For officers, it changes a little bit. So when I got there, it was still a pretty um, junior place. So you could end up doing two years or three years was kind of the standard. And then, then the pyramid gets smaller. So it depends on what's available for you as the next job. There's certainly officers who go back and have the opportunity to go back depending on their timing and things like that who can do, you know, some extra years there for sure. But it, but they're going to have to, they're going to leave, come back and leave and come back and things like that. So it's a, and, and, you know, one of these things too is, is you kind of consider it a, you know, one of these premier places to go and it's no better than the SEAL teams or worse than the regular SEAL teams. It's just different and it's a different mission set. But what's nice about it is when you train guys to that level and give them that experience and then you seed them back into the SEAL teams, they share that experience and it gets spread around and their expertise gets spread around in their specific skill sets. And then they learn new things by going back to the SEAL teams as well, revisiting different mission sets. So you get this great sort of cross-pollinization across the organization that really helps it grow. And I think that's important. And what is it like to lead, to be an officer in that kind of environment? Yeah, it's certainly a, it's a challenge. And I think it becomes a, this is where I'm a big proponent of situational leadership. Not every organization, every group requires the same type of leadership. It requires you to be flexible. So you have guys there that have been there for 15, 17 years. And you are in a position as an officer of formal authority, meaning that I have the rank, but does that mean that I'm leading you? Does that mean people are following me? And who am I following as well, right? So you have to establish your credibility. You have to establish a trust with these guys. And that become, comes from listening to them and not wearing that formal authority. They know it's there. You know, these guys are bright. Mm-hmm. 
They want to see your performance. They don't want to hear your words. They want to see your deeds. What do you do? What kind of decisions do you make? How are you making decisions? Do you have our interests in mind as well? So am I leading them all together? You know, we're all moving out together. I'm taking into consideration where they want to go as well. And you really have to be, you know, I think a huge key here is to be listening, you know, 70% of the time or more. So you're listening and learning as a leader there, then making decisions based on input from a lot of these guys who have experience. Now, ultimately, too, it's not a consensus process, you know, where you all sit around and agree, you know, it's going to be disagreement. And the leader has to ultimately make the decision, the person that has the formal authority, because you are going to be held accountable. If you have some kind of consensus decision making going on, nobody ever gets held accountable. There's nobody really knows who's responsible, but it require, you know, what it requires in these high performance organizations is really taking a lot of input in. Um, and you have to figure out as well, who can you trust? Who are my go-to people? Who are the people that are going to advance with the team? How do I, there's a big social dynamic that you have to take into account, right? All these people are interacting. You can't just treat it like cogs in a machine. They're not, they're people. And they're very bright people when they get to that, you know, type of an organization. Mm-hmm. And from the next step, as a ground force commander, you played a pivotal role in the operation to rescue Jessica Lynch. Can you talk about the extraordinary complexities involved in the planning and execution of the rescue operation? Yeah, a little bit. We'll kind of stay a little bit general, but the whole, it, it happened relatively quick that we got word that we were going to go in and do this rescue. So we got initial people on the ground and we started immediately planning. What are, you know, what do we know? So you kind of say, okay, let's work, let's work a little bit backwards. What do we know about the problem at hand? You know, do we know where she is? Do we have exact specifics? What do we know about the city? What do we know about the buildings that she's being held in, the surrounding areas? What do we know about the friendly forces? Where are they? What do we know about the enemy forces? Where do we think they are? You know, so what assets do I have? You know, what capabilities can I bring to bear? So you try and gather all this information, the same as you're going to do, you know, in a fire. Hey, what do, what do I know about what I'm going into? What do I know about the building I'm going into? What do I know about what capabilities do, does my, you know, house have? What trucks do we have? Yeah. Where's the water access? All these things, right? So you start to take all those into account. First kind of assess your own situation. What do we got going on? And it's always going to be incomplete, right? <laughs> it's not, you don't get this perfect picture. So there's a lot sure. of uh, unknowns that are going to be in there. But you try and draw the best picture you kind of can. And then you begin to look at, okay, how are we going to tactically execute this? We know what we want to do. We want to rescue her and get her out alive. And we would also like to get all of our people out alive if possible, right? So you have sure. two main goals there. Um, and, you know, and now you drive your decisions around those goals and what you're going to do. So we begin to develop sort of a plan and start to figure out, okay, who's best suited to do certain things? Uh, what capabilities do we have? Let's put the Rangers over here 
so that they can block off, you know, a bulk of the enemy forces. We're best inside the buildings and hostage rescue and clearing places. We have some of the medical pieces. What do we want to do with the helicopters? Where are we going to put them? How do we cover the terrain? Um, how do we have, you want to also, if you can, you know, develop some piece of redundancy in there or some piece of resiliency. So we don't just want to come in, if possible, via air, right? Everybody just a full helicopter assault. Can I get ground troops there as well? Because what happens if the helicopter gets shot down or sure. if it can't make it because of weather? Okay, let's send ground troops as well. Can I get a convoy? Is that possible for me to get a convoy in and bring a bulk of the troops and a lot more of them than I can bring in helicopters on the ground? And then I'll have other assets there as well. Okay, that's possible. So let's try and attack this thing from multiple angles so that if one happens to fail, the other one can still succeed the mission, you know, and vice versa. So you begin to plan all that out. Now you have to work with where you add some complexities and the same as, you know, same as you guys, I'm sure it's not always just, you know, one truck, you know, or one station showing up at a place. You're going to have right. police there, EMTs, different. You could have a whole nother station. What? Hey, where, what are they going to do? Who's in charge of all that? And so you start laying out sort of those guidelines and then you have to start figuring out different, what languages are they speaking as well? Because we all speak different languages, you know, firemen speak different language than police. For us, you know, the army speaks a different language than the Navy. We speak a different language, special operations than somebody on a ship. So now we got to make sure communications are clear and we know who's in charge and kind of what's going to be done. And we're going to integrate and have, so in my convoy, I had, I forget what it was. It was around 10 vehicles filled up with SEALs. And another 11 filled up with Rangers. And so one of the things, you know, did is I put one of my seals with each group of Rangers so that they could then, because we were very time constrained, so not everybody got the whole briefing and the plan on what we were doing. We tried to get it around as fast as we could, but we got to kind of build this airplane while we're flying it to some extent. So I put a guy with each one of their groups just for the initial piece. So on the ride and the convoy, he's able to explain to them and kind of go, Hey, here you go. Here's what we're going to do. Here's the general plan. Here's where you guys are going to be. Here's where you need to be, you know, at the beginning, here's where you need to be in the middle of the execution. Here's where you need to be at the end. Here's what we're going to do. If this goes wrong or this goes wrong, a couple of the major things that could go wrong. Right. And then they're going to transfer back to their vehicles. And so we have little, places built in to do that. But again, making sure that the communication and everybody sort of knows their roles is done. So it gets very complex. I got halfway through, you know, we're just getting ready to take off and leave. And I get told, Hey, the, um, these guys up here, there's two tanks that are part of the tank platoon. They said they can offer those up to you guys. I'm like, tanks. Awesome. <laughs> Don't, you know, if you ever get offered like tanks, don't turn them down. Hell <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll take some tanks. You know, but I don't know. I'm not a tanker. I don't right. know what what's the best way to use these things. What what are the vulnerabilities of them? What could go wrong? What are they good at? What are they? How do you employ them the right way? So again, you're leading the whole group, and you have to figure this out. 
Well, you figure that out by being humble and listening and asking questions and going, okay, tell me, you know, what can go wrong with you guys? You know, and I find out that, you know, tracks on tanks are actually relatively vulnerable. They, they can throw a track, you know, the, the bottom thing that goes over their yep. wheels True. there. And if they throw that, it's a big fix. It essentially, they become like dead in the water and it takes a little bit to fix that. Uh, they can do it, but they're stuck. And you're like, Ooh, well, how often does that happen? They're like, Oh, well not too, you know, it can happen. And I'm like, okay, well, that's not good. And <laughs> all right, how do we counter that? What if that happens? Because we're on a very precise timeline. So we have to be there at the same exact time within, you know, a couple of seconds of the helicopters getting there because they don't have enough people to counter the expected enemy force. So we have to be there at the same time. And I'm like, okay, well, if you guys blow a track, you're on your own. So <laughs> we can either leave that tank, you can button it up and you can come with us or you're staying here because we're not sacrificing this mission, we got to stay on this timeline and you can't fix that tank within the timeline. So if that happens, here's what we're going to do. Let's have this discussion now so that you clearly understand what our intent is. That tank can get buttoned up and left behind and you can come with us. Or if you want to stay with your tank, good luck. You know, <laughs> you're like, okay. I'm like, can you ram into stuff? What else can you do? Like, and so, I started learning about all the other capos and where do I want to put them and position them? Okay. They're best to be obviously kind of external and on the perimeter and they can return fire, you know, and take fire much more effectively. Okay. How much do you need to maneuver? How much do you need to stay static? So you start learning all these things about your assets that are there. If you haven't used them before, you know, or you're unfamiliar with them and they were great. They were able to clear out roads. I'm sure that they kept, uh, some people from shooting at us, things like that. Never great idea to go after tanks. They're pretty capable things. So small arms fire and tanks are uh, not, never turns out well for the people with the small arms for the most part. So, so we use those, we get all those things coordinated and then we still have to coordinate, you know, as we move through the city, you know, what are we going to do if we get contacted? Because you remember the ultimate mission is to get there, you know, get to, where she's being kept at the hospital. So all your decisions kind of derive around that and you have a lot of things going on. You have to learn to delegate certain things. So, Hey, you're now in charge of this. You're in charge of this and you can delegate your authority to people to do certain things. You, it's still your responsibility though. You've never, you cannot delegate your responsibility. My responsibility is to get, that ground force to that hospital at that time. You know, that's my first mission. Now I delegate certain pieces of that, but I'm still responsible for getting that all there. So you delegate things down, take the burden off yourself. You can't control all these things. So you have to develop relationships. You have to figure out who you're going to trust and trust them to go do the job within the guidelines that you've given them. And so it also takes really clear communication that you understand the direction that I've given you or the right and left limits or the boundaries that I've set for your decision-making. 
and it's clear. And usually, you know, you want to hear it back. You know, one of the best ways to, to make sure that that's clear, especially in sort of a complex or dynamic environment, even chaotic at times, is to hear that back. You know, I'm telling you to go over to the north sector and link up with these two Humvees and then meet us at the bridge. Okay, got it, boss. You know, all right. What are you doing? <laughs> I'm going to the north sector to get these two Humvees and then meet you at the bridge. I'm like, what time? This time. Okay, awesome. You know, so that everybody's kind of confirming that because as things move fast, you do have the time to do some of those things and make sure that, you know, you're, because in those chaotic environments, I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this. Yes. Mistakes can compound, you know, and they, they snowball into a, a small one can snowball into a bigger and bigger one, and especially like a miscommunication can cause those mistakes to compound and get bigger and bigger. Where if you had taken just the, that extra moment up front, you could have avoided some of that. Leading a life like this with all this complexity and, and trying to bring order to chaos must have been great lessons for business, you know, as you moved out into the private sector. It is. You know what? It's, it's actually great lessons for life. It's, it's not just business. It is, it's domain agnostic. So whether you are firefighter, law enforcement, an athlete, you're in the business world. These sort of dealing with complexity is a universal skill and necessity. The only, there's really no domain that's not complex and has these elements to it. You know, there's, I heard somebody, you know, in business, I gave a speech the other day and they were said, well, yeah, you guys are dealing with life and death. I mean, that's a big difference. Well, so is the business world. You know, if you're running a business or you're part of a business or you're a leader in a business and you fire a guy or you get rid of a guy or that business goes under, they're not making money. They're not able to provide for their family, you know, or they may not have a home. I mean, there's a lot of life decisions that are attached, you know, to business as well. And people in business shouldn't underestimate, you know, the impact that they can have on people's lives. And so these, these lessons are domain agnostic. You need to embrace ambiguity. You cannot control everything. You know, the, the best word that I have for is, you navigate it, right? You don't, you're not going to be able to control it. You are navigating like a ship at sea. And so you're going to do everything that you can prepare, but things are going to get thrown at you. You don't know what that sea state's going to be like. You don't know. You have a general idea, but you don't know what winds are going to come up. You don't know if you're going to, you know, whatever, hit a stupid Connex box or, you know, a storage container at sea with your sailboat. Who knows? or your fishing boat, or a rogue wave comes out of nowhere. So you're navigating, you know, you have an azimuth or direction that you're going on, and then you adjust and move on your assessment of the environment around you. And if you don't think that you're in a complex world and this doesn't apply to you, you're wrong. I'd like to see, I can't think of the domain you know, that it doesn't apply to. 
I don't know, maybe a software coder who sits there in his own <laughs> universe and never leaves his computer and has no interactions with people. But even then, he's probably interacting virtually in some way, that there's some sort of elements of complexity involved. So it, it applies to everybody, being able to navigate, control what you can, you know, influence what you can, but then you navigate the rest. And that, that rest is a huge percentage. <laughs> Yeah, that line that you used, uh, two is one, one is none, right, with regards to tools and redundancies, um, very applicable in, in complex situations. It is. You want to try and make yourself as redundant as possible. So two is one, one is none. It applies to not only your physical items that you may have, you know, whatever it may be. Maybe you're going camping. I think I use the example in the book of, you know, the fire starters. Or what, I want to have multiple methods to start a fire. One of the big things in the mountains, you know, when I lived in Colorado and did some mountaineering and things like that, is it can get cold. And it can get cold, you know, at high altitude, even in the summer. So you want the ability to somehow generate heat. And, you know, that's kind of one of the basic necessities. You know, we go water, food, some kind of shelter or heat to keep your you know, survival up. And if you only bring one thing, you know, I bring one dick lighter, that's probably not the best idea. Thing <laughs> is what, you know, yeah. Bring some matches that are dipped in wax, you know, bring something different, bring, you know, a little fire starter, some steel wool on your fire starter. They have different gizmos that are out there, you know, bring a, one of those windproof lighters, but you want to try and have redundancy built in. You know, when we go on the mission, we don't bring one radio you bring two radios. So if one fails, now not every guy carries that, right? We're, our physical capacity is limited, but you bring an extra if you can. We go out in the Zodiacs, we're in the boats, you know, for the four boats, every four boats has one extra motor because you're, it's going to fail. And then you try and make, try and identify what are the critical items that you need and those are the ones that you focus on making redundant. And it's, it also applies to the less tangible side, the intangible side is two is one, one is none. Applies to you as a person as well. You know, you have, we have what we call a swim buddy. So it's the person that you're, you're with all the time. Make sure that you're linked up with this person. It's combat. You know, who are you linked up with? So I know where this guy is all the time. That way in the end, when we can account very quickly in a chaotic environment, Hey, does everybody got their buddies? Yep. Okay. That's all it takes. Yeah. No, wait, where's so-and-so instead of doing some, you know, crazy head counter, all these things, we can look around yep. very quickly and assess. Okay. And it's, you know, and it's a support mechanism as well. You cannot go it alone. One is none. You think you can maybe deal with PTSD issues you have, mental side problems, traumatic brain injury, whatever it may be, family issues. Going it alone is old school and does not yeah. work. Trust me, I'm Irish. I come from an Irish family, right? Well, you know, drink <laughs> and repress. Here. It's a, <laughs> drink and repress. There you go. So, but that's really not the best advice you could give somebody. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. You're not Agreed. alone. There are people out there who 
who've gone through, you know, what you have gone through or something similar, you know, that it's available to you. Don't, you know, be the singular hero that's out there. You know, you're in a house. I mean, you guys rely on each other left and right. Who's got your back? Don't go into that place alone or thinking that you're alone. Two is one, one is not, you know, keep that in mind. Well said. Shifting gears, Commander, I was surprised to read uh, your less than enthusiastic opinion about General Stanley McChrystal's plans to increase operational tempo. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it wasn't that, so it wasn't necessarily increasing the operational tempo. We were already running at a pretty high tempo, and we didn't mind at all upping the tempo even more. The challenge that we had with it and that I think that all organizations get lost in is there's a big difference between speed and velocity. So let's think about a car engine, right? There's a lot of things going on when I step on that accelerator. So that engine's turning at a certain revolutions per minute. Let's say I'm just standing on the accelerator and I have it redlined at 10,000 RPM. There's a lot of motion and a lot of operational tempo happening. But unless I put that car in gear and have a direction that I'm going, all that's for naught. It's really wasted. And if you were to run that thing at 1,000 RPM and put it in drive, you would make more progress than you would just spinning your wheels. And so that was our challenge there is that it seemed to be that they did not have a direction. The direction that they were going was simply more operational tempo. And we're like, well, to what end? What are you accomplishing with all this? You're, you're trying to get out and do ops every night and you take over, you know, you raided another village. Okay, great. And you've done five raids this week. What'd you find? Well, we found, you know, AK-47 in this house and another one in this thing. You're like, yeah, everybody in Afghanistan has an AK-47. <laughs> Doesn't mean they're all bad guys. This is how they protect themselves. Yeah. So, and are you stirring them up? And are you pissing these people off now that maybe they were kind of neutral towards you before? Now they're negative because you just blew in their front door, rounded up their family. To what end? What? And it seemed to us that when we would ask the questions of, wait, what are you trying to do? And you, you started asking it. It wasn't, and why are you trying to do it? Sort of a lot of the answers were, you know, less than satisfied. It was, well, because this is what we're doing. They started using the metric, you know, the old sort of Vietnam body count metric. Let's, okay, so how are you progressing? What direction are we going towards? And they were just going towards more operation. More must be better. And like, no, 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 it's not. More is not better. It's, you're doing a lot of the, you know, doing a lot of the wrong thing just means you're doing a lot of the wrong thing. So what are you doing? What's behind this? And that's, that was the challenge we had. And, and we had already been there for a while and going, we are running things at a high tempo. That's not the problem. The tempo is not the problem. The problem is the lack of direction. And that was in um, 2004 or three, I think four, we got there. So you can see this 
four out nearly 20 years later, you know, 15 years later, where we're left with in Afghanistan now is because of no direction. There wasn't a direction and azimuth that they were on, or they constantly changed it and moved it around and were using metrics to sort of backdate their metrics to success. And we could see it coming in 2004. Like you don't have a direction here. What is the direction? Where are we all moving together as a team? You know, where are we moving together as the United States? What what are we trying to do here? And that was never fully answered. And I don't think they ever had it in their heads fully. So as a result, we end up exactly what everybody saw for the next 15 years. Yeah, terrible ending. The toll that it took on your community constantly being being worked and worked uh, you talk about it briefly you talk about the, the the workload but also the the tbi the traumatic brain injury from you know knocking in doors um has your community suffered greatly from the work the overwork that you were asked to do i think they have um and it's but it's dealing with it really well so there is a big recognition recognition of it in our community there was a big shift towards taking care of the guys and trying to figure out hey wait a second this isn't all ptsd this isn't necessarily real there's some physical trauma happening here so with the discovery of sort of tbi and recognizing it as a physical injury and treating it as such and recognizing that hey we they do need some outlet valves we have to have some how do we employ these guys in the right way and not burn them out? So a lot of those lessons they're still employing and working on. Um, but it, it certainly took a toll and you saw guys get burned out and I don't think you're going to see all the repercussions from it, you know, for years, they're, they're still going to be out there and they're going to manifest, you know, over the years. And as guys, what's interesting is as guys get out, some of those things manifest a little bit more once they get some separation and, you know, for lack of a better phrase, kind of get off the hamster wheel and have a, have a moment to stop and think is when it starts to hit guys the most. And they're like, Whoa. So there was some, you know, some sort of a delay in it by keeping guys busy. Mm-hmm. And then it was the, what was the right busyness level to, you know, how do we keep their body still in shape? How do we make sure that they're recovering from injuries? How do we get them back in the road? How do we keep their families in shape? You know, family life can't be ignored. So they started different programs to help with that and make sure that families kind of had resources and counseling. So they really are trying to address that. It's a hard problem to address. You know, it's a really complex problem. You need guys to serve and, you know, it takes a toll. But at the same time, you need to balance that so that they're able to do that in the best way possible. So it's there is no solution to it. It's a constant adjustment going on as you learn more things and what approaches work, maybe what doesn't work, and you you flex from there. And you, you have to, but you have to keep learning and keep trying things and keep optimizing that because you can't just, you know, you can't you can't get blood from the stone. So you have to realize that sometimes stepping back and slowing down for a minute actually makes you more optimal 
and it's figuring out when those times are and making sure that those downtimes are also optimal, that they're quality, that people can spend quality time with their family, that you can relieve them of some of the burden of, you know, uh, maybe some financial things or stuff like that, or they're, you know, they know that their kids are able to go to school. They know that their kids are going to be safe in school, you know, things like that. They know that they're going to have this vacation on the end of it, or they might get a paid one or they might get some paid away with their family, you know, things like that. So making sure that both ends, you have to consider the whole person, not just the person that you have at work. Yeah. The idea of recovery is something that we need to learn in, in our world that you just can't simply run people day in and day out without consequence. Um, we're just yeah, starting to absolutely. learn that ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Because the reality is, is that that actually you get better performance. Yeah. And it's just so counter to how we normally think, especially people that are in these physical professions, whether it's soldiering, fire, uh, law enforcement, these type sort of, very physically demanding, I guess, for lack of a better word, the occupations that demand courage and emotional investment in things take a big toll. But the people there that are doing this job, it's the counter was always that it's not acceptable to speak up or to take a break, you know, because you are so competitive to get there. You want to be the one that's always out doing the job. And so you want to be competitive doing that. It's the competitive nature that is hard to pull back on. And so often the leadership has to pull back on that and, and force to some extent that downtime. Because guys, by nature, in these professions, will often not do it on their own. Right. Right. And I guess all this comes into a larger umbrella with the understanding of the human factor, like getting a better understanding of, of, of what it's like to, to live and to work and to operate in stress. And I don't know if you could talk about this, but to the extent possible, I'm assuming that, that you guys gain this type of training, that you're taught this early on. You know what? It starts at like buds, that initial training. That, and they're, they're going to tell you there. It is 90% mental. And so you're going to spend a lot of that time on the mental part of the game. You know, you're going to spend a lot of the time on, hey, this is about confidence. What do you do? How, how you think, you know, how you're able to process things, make decisions, how you're able to learn, all that is contributing to the other pieces of your job. So it really is important to understand, you know, pieces of the psychology behind that, how the mind affects performance. You know, it, it matters if you had a good day or a bad day, you know, at home. That can affect how you perform as much as, you know, being hydrated can. So you start to take those things into account and just don't see the surface. You start saying, okay, what else can we do? to mentally kind of help this. We look at things like what, what, how can guys de-stress, get that downtime? How can we get, we know that, you know, physically sleep really affects your mental ability. 
And we really need people, you need them to be able to make the best decisions that they can. And to do that, you have to be in a, you know, a heightened mental state. And you have to know how to kind of, and they talk about, you can't live in this red zone, you know, your entire life where you're constantly in sort of a wartime footing, you will yeah. burn out. There's, there's processes going on in your brain, there's enzymes being released and there's different, you know, chemicals that are being released, dopamine, adrenaline, all these things. Well, you can't sustain those consistently. So you have to understand that there's a way to drop down, you know, the right way and pull back on those and then ramp those up. And leadership needs to recognize too, when somebody's burned out and they might just need a break, but doesn't, you know, bad, but they burn the end of theirs and everybody has a different volume of water in their glass, or, or I should say they have a different size glass. Every single person does. So some people, you know, fill up real quick. Some people don't. And it's, it's really important to take the psychology of all this behind it. And, you know, on the mental side of things as well, it's important for us to understand things like incentives and behavioral economics you know, we're big into what incentivizes guys to go do this. And I look at it as when we look at the enemy situation as well, what's incentivizing them? Why are they doing what they're doing? So it is a big mental piece. Uh, and it's, and we stress that. And from the very beginning, that it's, that it is about thinking quality of decisions. How do you make those decisions? What kind of mental state are you in? How is your brain working? They're doing more and more now with guys that they're wiring up and looking at their actual biological, physiological responses. What enzymes are they releasing when they go through a house, when they're doing the shooting, when they're doing a hostage rescue, where's your heart rate going? How much dopamine are you pumping out? And they're trying to measure those different things to gain a better understanding of, you know, because a lot of that, you know, the mental piece, a lot of that is, is actually chemical actions going on. So yes, we're really trying to get that. That is a lot of the key to optimal performance and, and optimal team performance. You know, you, you've seen it. Teams that don't get along, that all have a bad attitude. I mean, their performance is just not going to be there. And that can okay. just be on attitude and your mental outlook on things. And you can see a team of rock stars that are individual, you know, really good performers, not gel together as a team or have, you know, a, a viral sort of bad apple in there that can crush that team and just can be the worst performing team with all, you know, of the best individual performers in it because the dynamic and the mental piece is not working. In the FTNY, Jason Bresler six years ago brought a program to us, mental performance initiative to help us kind of, not to the extent that you're doing. I mean, we measure heart rates with a whoop, uh, biometric device. We've done yep. already some research projects, uh, one with Columbia. And we never thought for a second that we generated any kind of stress volume. And now just the initial looks, it's absolutely staggering what we do. <laughs> yeah, and, absolutely. You know, I mean, that's, that's interesting too. And as you say, like the same for us doing, doing a hostage rescue or clearing a building, um, the same for you clearing a building. What happens to guys, you know, as they move from, you know, one point of the fire to a different point of the fire, does their adrenaline pull back so that that heart rate doesn't constantly keep elevating? Are they able to, you know, it looks more like spikes 
rather than a constant nonstop elevation where the, it leads to a crash or the inability to make decisions. You want to see sort of a, a jump that's going to be natural. You're going to see a jump in the adrenaline and the oxygen and the heart rate, but then it should rapidly fall off when that situation's done. Right. Or, I mean, I'm talking even between rooms when you maybe move from one part of the house to another and you have that momentary five, 10 seconds of rest, you should see a decrease instead of a constant laddering up that's eventually going to lead to, you know, think of it like a balloon bursting. Right. So those things are important to measure. And then how do you deal with that? And how do I de-stress this? And it also can give you some indicators. We're using it for indicators of who's suited to this job and who's not, you know? And so you can go, whoa, this, because somebody has some of those indicators of a constant laddering up, you know, and their bubble's going to burst, doesn't mean they're not going to be able to do the job, but it does allow you to put an eye on them and go, hey, this is a pretty strong indicator of somebody who's not capable of mentally handling this. So when they reach this certain point, they're going to be frozen or stressed out or their cup is full real quick. You're kind of almost trying to measure the volume of the cup, you know, how much, how much can they take and how much water can they dump out to make more room? How quickly can you do that? And so that's really important in these high stress environments. You know, does a police officer go from a pretty contentious, you know, stop and then it all ends, whatever, maybe he arrests the guy uh, or gal or whatever. And then does he, is he able to ramp back down to sort of the baseline where he was as he goes out for the next encounter? Or does that, does he keep ramping up and his cup just keep filling up, filling up, filling up so that by the time he gets to the third encounter that night or the fourth encounter that could have been relatively innocuous, it's suddenly a disaster because his cup was full and all these other things contributed. So how quickly kind of can you leave those things behind? You want to try and, if you can measure those and you see those and what's going to, and as people become more aware of, hey, hey, I don't know, ramp back down, get back down to your baseline. It's a new encounter. The past is the past. You know, we all do this. So that those are important aspects of it. And I think that we're just starting to scratch the surface in a lot of arenas on these and how important it is. Yeah, it's it's the frontier for fundamental improvement. You know, there's, there's only it is. so many ways you can teach somebody to shoot or to force a door open. Um we're recognizing this as well. You, in that same vein, you talk about a, a 90-10 training to op ratio. And and that the police officer segment you just talked about really honed in on us. In our world, whether it's the fire service, law enforcement, EMS, the operational ratio is, is probably 95, 96, 97, and training covers the rest. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it's, and it's, the consequences are so catastrophic. Now, look, you're, you're a national, you're tier one unit of defense the nation. You train for, for reality, right? Train like you fight. You guys get to train in chaos for X number of days a year. I mean, that, that's an extraordinary benefit. Uh, could you talk a little yeah, bit about is. that balance? Yeah. And certainly that training, that training ratio went, you know, way down during the wars, you could have gotten that close to, you know, 
that can go down to a 50 50, you know, or even less than that, depending on how often you're deployed and what you're doing, it could go way below that. But the training is so fundamentally important and it, it starts with your initial structures, you know, so you have a lot of legacy structures that are there and it takes somebody to break that sort of paradigm and go, look, the training is important. Here's, and so in terms of business, what's your return on investment in that? And you'd say, Hey, here's the return on investment. You know, we keep people longer. We have people safer. We are able to service more things because we've been able to do things quicker, whatever it may be there. There is a return on investment to that. And it's the same for law enforcement as it is for, I think, firefighters and things. And that it's just so important because what the training does is the training gives you a whole bunch of mental models. So you're encountering situations that now when you encounter them in the real world, you've likely encountered something similar. So it's not as much of a surprise. So you're able to respond to it better rather than react or go into this situation completely unfamiliar. And that gives you, so now you're more prepared to handle it. And that's what we're trying to do with all the training, not only develop the skill sets, right? But at the same time, show all these different mental models of things that are happening. So there is value in repetition of certain things and doing it right. So you want to shoot, you know, I mean, we had the, the amount that we shoot, especially at DevGrew is, is just, people can't fathom it almost. <laughs> it's just crazy. You know, you had like, you can do thousands of rounds a day, you know, and you'd have minimum 500 a day that you'd have to shoot while you were in certain portions of training. And then when you were ramped up and doing the shooting phases for three, four weeks, you're shooting thousands a day. A, a police officer might shoot a thousand at the range in his career. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It, that's, that is absolutely crazy to then think that you're going to perform in one of these situations at your optimum if you haven't had that training. I tell this to my son. We we go we we play this. We have a little battle going on between us on some baseball performance, <laughs> and I'm like, buddy, you got to get out and practice. We need to go to the batting cages more often because the more pitches you see, the more you swing the more familiar with it you're going to be and you're going to perform better in the game for you to think magically that you're going to do, you know, one practice, you know, in the cage a week and then go do great in the game. No, you're not. So it shouldn't be a big surprise to you that you have some problems. Um, and it's the same with this. So if you figure out ways to get those mental models or training in there, it's just so uh, you guys are constrained by a structure that has been set up not to do that. And it's been set up as an on the job type training. You're still doing training, but it's on the job. So, yeah. so mistakes kind of compound and you get some, you know, a new guy in there who doesn't have any mental models. Maybe he's been to fire school. He's been to police Academy and he's seen three or four situations, you know, and, now he's got something entirely new and he's like, holy crap. Okay. Then he gets mentally overwhelmed as well. 
in a high stress environment and he's not able to handle it. Now you have guys there, largely your guys that, you know, are in the fire service or in uh, law enforcement have learned these lessons the hard way, you know, a lot of them through making a lot of mistakes or seeing these. And so you have the survivors that are left that have learned this and then are trying to teach it to those new guys. But it's difficult on the job piece because you're also at the same time trying to do your job. So it's the structure needs to be changed in order to get to that train piece. And it needs to be recognized that's going to take some more resources. And so being part of the public, you know, sector, the public sector needs to recognize that and go, look, we need to put more resources towards this. And there needs to be a cutaway for training. There needs to be a mandatory piece. And here's, you know, where it should be. Um, and it's the same, you know, what? It, it's the same in business as well. I see guys all the time and I talk to them. I give talks on leadership and things like that. And they're like, yeah, we're working on I'm like, yeah, well, how much, how many education have you given your guys on how to think? On how much have you given them on leadership? What have you done to, you know, help that process? Or help them think better. Well, we, we sent, you know, this guy to the speech or the class that you guys are giving. I'm like, yeah, good job. So you have out of the whole year that they're making decisions and doing this, you sent them to a four hour class or, you know, bought them a book, the one minute manager or something, or, you know, <laughs> like, good job. And you wonder why you have leadership problems. You're not training to it. And going through those mental models and those scenarios, and it's just building mm-hmm. on those. And, and it's the, the end return on investment is huge. Yeah, it's life and death. It is. It is. And, and I mean, you guys are dealing with you're, you're finding a way to do it on the job. But is it the most optimal way? And can you tweak some of that on the job to do it? You know, can you bring someone in earlier? Is there a way for them to sort of observe without, without inhibiting the actions of others? You know, so can they just watch? Can they just listen? Can you just invite somebody in to hear, you know, do you guys do after actions where you get done with the fire, you come back and you sit around yeah. and talk about what happened in the fire? Well, what if you have, you know, the new guys in there or people coming up, sitting there, listening to that, just observing. Now, I know that's a trust environment too, because we do the same things, right? So you want to be as open as you can and as candid as you can. So you have to have a trusted sort of circle. The after action that you give to higher ups is way different than the one you do internally. I'm sure. Yes, so, absolutely. <laughs> right. Um, but if you are resource constrained, you do try to have to have find clever workarounds and ways to do that. Uh, Cause that training and those mental models that you develop through that training are what is important. You know, I don't know, maybe it's talking in the truck on the way there in the car about scenarios. Um, things like that, that you know, I try and find kind of clever ways to work around it while at the same time trying to change the structure to, to make it more of a priority. Yeah, and that's slowly happening. Technology can help us. We can watch a tremendous amount of video work related to fires, both inside and outside buildings. Uh, the culture is starting to change, become more pro-training and, and, and better training. Uh, but I was struck by what you just said about AARs, because that was a question I wanted to, to ask you. 
particularly with an understanding of the human factor. You know, you think about operations, whether it's you at DevGrew or us, you know, like last night, we had a, we had a double fatal fire in Hall. You're asking guys, you know, each and every one of them has different eyes on the target. And then you come back and try and, you know, bring order to this. And sometimes auditory exclusion uh, recalls can be impacted. Do you account for this, given the understanding that you have when you conduct an AAR? Yeah, absolutely. So you have, you know, I think that the AAR process or the hot wash process, let's say that there's two processes. There's a formal one, and then there's the good one. <laughs> and there's, a, <laughs> there's some report that I got to send up. And then there's the one that happens amongst the team, amongst your trusted piece, so that you can really learn. And so with that, mistakes have to be pointed out. They have to be admitted. Now, what also happens, just like you said, everybody's perception is different. They're seeing it from different angles. And you're also learning what people see and the scope of their vision as well. So somebody who's experienced can see things at like 180 degrees. So they see the whole room and everything as soon as they walk into it, right? Somebody who's less experienced is maybe seen a little bit through soda straws or a little, you know, whatever toilet paper tubes where their, their vision is really constrained yeah. because they're being yeah. overwhelmed by the stress and things like that. So they may never see something. So you recognize when that's happening and that that's sort of a natural thing and you're going to work on increasing their vision and you let them know, Hey, here's really what happened. Now you, you walked right by that body that was in the room or the person that was there in the room under the bed. You never even checked. Oh shit. I never even saw a bed and it, it becomes okay to make mistakes. Uh, once, you know, that you can learn from. You're in a chaotic environment or you're in a very complex, ambiguous, dynamic, changing environment. So you have to tolerate some mistakes. If they're basic fundamentals, then that can only be kind of tolerated, you know, once. Did you know about that fundamental? Did, did we teach this to you? Is it on us? If we didn't ever teach it to you, but the proper way to clear a room is to make sure you look under this, you make look under this, do whatever you have to do, right? Some certain steps and procedures that you go through. Did you skip those? Why did you skip those? Did we fail in training? And then you got to learn from that. But the whole process of the hot wash is learning so that you can get better next time. And if it's glazed over and if it's there as some sort of a, it's re really tricky in an age of sort of, liability and things like that where others don't understand what you're trying to accomplish with this. You're trying to accomplish learning. They may be trying to place the blame somewhere. And so you ride this very fine line and that's why in a trusted circle, you kind of got to get together and go, okay, here's, here's what happened or here's where we went wrong. or Here's where we can improve. And it's so important because you can't, you can't improve unless you learn what you did wrong. And on everything that you do, there's something that was wrong. And it's not always, you know, it doesn't always result in a loss of life, but it, it could have gone better. So what could we have done better? 
And what did we do right that we want to amp up the volume on? So the same sort of idea. Hey, you know what? Really like the way the communication was working this time. This this thing worked great when we had just one person on the radio and the other guy turned, or worked great with everybody on. Everybody maintained good discipline. So we want to, you know, keep that procedure going. This one, though, didn't work good. So we don't want to do that. And you need to have that honest conversation and you need to take into account, like you said, perception, you know, you're going to have different perceptions that doesn't make them untrue to that person who saw that they're seeing one side, one angle, their angle, their side from their perspective. And so that all gets added in to make this whole quilt work of what is the more objective truth of what happened. And it's, and you sift through that. And sometimes you can't reconcile it. You're like, okay, I, I never saw that. You know, I never saw that guy over there. Uh, yeah. Or, I ne- you know, no, I didn't, I didn't see the ceiling getting ready to collapse. I had no idea. It looked totally fine to me. And somebody else is like, no way. It looked terrible. You didn't see the cracks starting across it or freaking whatever. <laughs> and the guy's like, no, I didn't. That's okay. He didn't. You know, okay, you got to look for those things. Well, I didn't even know I was looking for those as indicators, right? Or whatever. Yeah, you know, take to the layman going through the, yeah, I noticed the doorknob was hot as hell, but I opened the door anyway. You didn't, I, I guess in recollection, I did notice that it, yeah, it burned my hand. And then you still opened it? Well, I didn't even think about it. Okay, well, you should next time. Yes, there is next time. Um so yeah, that's it's important to take all that and just not be punitive on it. You know, it's it's a fine line. It's not something you can put in writing. It is a but you need you need to be learning creatures, but in a non punitive environment when necessary. If something's egregious, you know, or malicious or complete negligence, then we are punitive. But you need to know that as well, you know. So those are ex- extremely important to the growth of a team. Excellent. Commander, this has been a tremendous conversation. On behalf of Jason Bresler and Leadership Under Fire, we cannot thank you enough for your time and your insight and also your service. You know, as a 9-11 fireman, um, you know, thank you to, to you and all your men for what you've done to bring justice to those who, uh, you know, who brought uh, damage and, and pain to us. So, you know, in our, our community has very special uh, admiration for your world. Yeah, and 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 likewise, you know, you're you're absolutely welcome, and it was my honor to do that. And you know, likewise to your community, the, uh, you know, now we're home. We rely on you guys to protect us, you know, to keep us safe out there, and it's your job is incredibly difficult and, you know, I'd often say quite underappreciated. And so I think we're, we're all kind of brothers in arms uh, in, in the idea of service to our you know, fellow man.
The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit Leadership 